All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Have you ever been in a conversation with maybe someone on the left and you've talked about why you don't think the government should be doing something and they instantly respond, but if the government didn't do it, who would? In fact, in our last episode, we addressed this specifically with respect to the abortion debate where we have a lot of people saying that, you know, you claim to be pro-life, but you're really only pro-birth because you don't support paid medical family leave or you don't support universal health care or you don't support all these other government programs. So what we're going to be addressing today is specifically this idea, the differences with respect to how the left and the right typically view the role of government within society. And we're going to address some of those differences, not to mention the fact that we're going to get in to what I think is kind of a controversial idea. And this is the idea that the church in the West is actually contributing to its own downfall. So we're going to be answering why that is, how we potentially stop it. All of this and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Be sure to drop a comment on the YouTube channel with your thoughts on today's episode, and be sure to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks so much. All right, so I think first things first. Um, we want to kind of look at this from the left's perspective, and we're not trying to set up a straw man, right? Or as, or as I heard one person do a steel man. Give them the best version of their argument. Let's look at I think one of the primary differences between the left and the right when we look at problems within society. And we can all agree on certain problems like poverty or healthcare, or education, things like that. It's almost like a foregone conclusion on the left that if there's a problem, well, of course, especially if it's a, if it's a larger problem or a larger issue that we're trying to raise, of course there's going to be a government solution or approach or some sort of involvement. Whereas on the right, that is not necessarily a foregone conclusion. Right. And so it, it really is this, this idea of how do you view society? Do you, you, do you view government as the, the primary mechanism by which society is organized and by which problems are addressed? Or do you view government as simply one aspect among many within society and not necessarily the most important? And so I think the left sees government as something that we are all required by law to participate mm -hmm. in. It is a mechanism where through democratic processes, everyone can have some degree of say in the process. And so, of course, why wouldn't that be the most you know, just and effective method right. in which to affect change? Well, I think I, that's the difference. I think a perfect example of this is what we saw on Tuesday's episode this week with the abortion topic and how you know, we were looking at this tweet with this lady you know, listing out all these examples yeah. of you know, government programs. But Republicans know we weren't in favor of this. Yeah. And, and they, they, they put us in this position of, on their, in their eyes that if we are not in favor of government providing a solution— mm -hmm then we must be opposed to helping that individual in any circumstance. 
Well, it, it's it's kind of a it's a convenient way to set up the argument where it's it's pretty much either agree with me or you hate all of humanity. And and Bastiat, I think, had one of the best quotes. And and Bastiat said this in the I, 1700s. I'm going to pull it up. No, no, <laughs> yeah, he, no. He said uh, 1800s. Bastiat in the 1800s said, um, yeah, just pull, pull up the quote, Christian, because I don't want to butcher it. Socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this. Every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude we object to it being done at all. And then he gives a few examples. So he's, you know, he's like, you know, we, um, you know, we say that we're, we're opposed to state education. So then the socialists claim that we're opposed to any education. We object to a state religion. Then the socialists say we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality. And so then they say we're against equality, and so on and so on. It's as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting people to eat because we do not want the state to raise grain. I think, like, he just nailed it there. <laughs> it is, I mean, he uses some old-timey language, but it yeah. is true. It is as true today as it was in 1850. Well, and, and I think that, again, if, I, if, we're being fair, if we're being fair to the left perspective on this. Sure. Um, this also has, this is not just a difference with respect to politics. I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have to address here. And, and there's an article by Andrew Sullivan that, you know, Christian brought up that is really yeah. good, but really what this comes down to is it, it comes down to more of a fundamental question about worldview, not just politics. I agree. And, and it, if your worldview is rooted, like, so for instance, I'm a Christian, my worldview is rooted in my religious faith, which informs everything else that I see within society with respect to, you know, the, the application of the laws of logic, of rationale, of science, of morality, right? It, it is rooted in that central theme. And so government is a, is a, a part of that, right? But it, it's not the most important. It's not even the most dominant. Right. A good component. way to explain it. And from, from my opinion is that the politics is emergent from the philosophical grounding upon which it rests. Yeah. And so for example, if you're somebody on the left who is a postmodern, because I, I I think that the biggest difference to to go back to your original point between the left and the right on this is the right, and I mean the classical right, sure. yeah, because we might get into this episode as well about what's happening on the right as this this plays out. Yeah. But I think that the classical right believes in inherent value, meaning, purpose, truth, knowledge that there is something more to this world than than just what we see and that, that there are things that are objectively true. Yeah. It's not even just materialism, but, but there are things that are objectively true. Even if 99 or even if a hundred percent of people believe something that is false, it is still false. It is mm -hmm. not true just because popular vote or opinion thinks it's true. I think that the right comes from that, that, you we, know, we don't, be, we don't believe truth is out for democratic interpretation. Yes. Whereas the left you know, has has a, a, adopted this view that is called postmodernism, which is the idea that knowledge and truth is relative. And the extreme version of it is actually that that there is no truth at all, and that there is no meaning at all, and that everything is subjective. And the end result of that is is that ultimately you end up having a worldview where you might claim, for example, that you know I believe in separation of church and state, but your church is the state oh. because everybody yearns. It is part of the human condition. Everybody yearns for finding purpose and meaning in life. At the end of the day, 
people who say there is no meaning in life are deluding themselves because everybody searches for meaning to some degree. Your meaning might be that you don't think there is a meaning. <laughs> yeah. You might believe that there are no beliefs, but yeah. that's still a belief in of itself. And yeah. so like what I'm trying to say is, is that you, you cannot build a house with no foundation. Everybody has that foundation. Even if your foundation is that there's no objective truth or meaning, that's your foundation. That foundation is a really crappy <laughs> that ends up foundation. That's your objective truth or meaning, right? But it, I think that that is ultimately the fundamental difference between the left and right in that the politics then emerges out of that sure. philosophical or theological grounding upon which people on the left and right start with. Well, and, and, and you see that in, and, and here's the part to understand. Because uh, this is critical, because I, I, you hear this all the time from people on either side of the spectrum. Like, I can't believe they believe this, or man, that's so stupid, or how could anyone? Okay, well, if your philosophical grounding, right, if the starting point of your worldview is, is completely different, then it makes sense that you would come to very different conclusions with respect to what should be done to address certain problems that sure. you see as either existential or moral or economic or whatever. And so... If, if your standpoint is, is well, there, there is no God or there is no ultimate meaning um, and, and everything is essentially utilitarian and, and this is all about what happens to work best for me at that given time, then you could understand how someone could come to the conclusion that, look, the only way we're going to be able to do this without all killing each other is if we have a, a democratic process through government power in order to address these problems. This goes back to why the left places such an emphasis on democracy, hearkening back to a previous episode yeah. of ours. Yeah. Well, I think it's also important to point out that in the left's pursuit to have the state serve in every role of life, Christian, you and I have grown up in a time period where every aspect of our life had some sort of government involvement. Education, all the way, all through twelve grades, you know, funding for college, whatever it may be, state institutions. Oh, it's even more than that. I mean, there's government regulations roads. on the size of toilet bowls in restaurants, yeah. and <laughs> and so I think for our generation, if you're not politically uh, involved or on the right of this conversation, it's natural for you to assume that the government must play a role in every aspect of society. Well, I, I think I think it also comes down to this. So that's like the deeper philosophical commitment to government, right? But then you have other people like, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian or I'm, you know, or I, I'm a theist. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a materialist. And I believe that the government should be doing all of these yeah. things because it's the appropriate, you know, weighted martial resources. And, and and what's interesting about that is that when you start to look at the government approach to a lot of these things, so let's say, let's say helping the poor. Sure. Right. So let's assume that we're not talking about people that just don't care about, you know, other people. We, let's assume we all care about helping the poor. You would think logically, then the question would be like, what is what is the best way to do that? And you're there's two questions you got to answer with that. One of those questions is a practical question. And one of those questions is a moral question. Okay. And they're connected. Right. There's this idea you saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tried to do this and she totally botched it up where she said some people are so concerned about being logically correct that they're morally incorrect. It's like, OK, no, AOC, the, the morally correct answer does, does not defy like the factual or true answer. Now, you can have someone that says, OK, it's logical for me to steal from you because it will enrich me. Right. OK, that that might be logical in their way of thinking. It's still immoral and ultimately it still produces bad results. Okay, but the reason why you're going to answer these two questions is because if the way that you're going to help the poor is, well, I'm going to alleviate their suffering by putting them all in prison where I can feed and give them medical care. Okay, well, 
no, that's <laughs> that, that might be effective in addressing one aspect of poverty that you're trying to address, which is maybe the homeless situation. But obviously there's a moral deficiency there, right? Not to mention that there's also a, a practical deficiency with respect to how to organize that. It, it goes even further than that. I mean, I'm when you said that, I immediately thought of the Thomas Sowell quote that, you know, there's, there's nothing, you know, dumber than putting decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. Yeah. Like, the, this is also potentially, I, I believe, another Thomas Sowell quote that, you know, a conservative sees a fence post and asks why it's there before ripping it up yeah. out of the ground. I, I think that when there's a problem that appears within society, it could be homelessness or poor, it could be something medical related, whatever the issue is, there's always problems out there in the world, right? Yeah. The conservative looks at this and says, recognizes that it's a problem. I'm not saying like, you know, yeah. close your eyes to it, but recognizes that it's a problem, but then says, is this an appropriate, legitimate role for government? And then if it is, what level of government should we address it at? And to what degree should we address it at? Whereas somebody on the left approaches any issue in society, any moral ill or societal ill, and their immediate response is, oh my gosh, we need a government solution right now. And it needs to be total and absolute. Well, and, and the reason why it's and, and the reason why I think it's so pervasive, because a lot of times conservatives will look at a particular welfare program and will say this failed miserably, like this particular program failed miserably. You spent a lot of money. You didn't really alleviate poverty. In fact, people feel trapped there. And so we look at that as isn't this a perfect example of the government creating perverse incentives and not achieving its, its objective? And the left will immediately come in and say, no, 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 we just had the wrong people doing it, or we had the wrong incentives. Or we need more money. Or we need more it. money, or mm -hmm. we need more time, or we need more power. Right. Right. Because they're already they're already philosophically committed to this is the mechanism we use to solve problems. And and so it, it almost seems absurd to them. Or it, it it becomes easy to assume that, well, no, when you say you don't want the government to do anything, what you really mean is you don't want to pay taxes or you don't want to deal with the regulations, or you don't want to have to sacrifice in order to help somebody that needs it because you're selfish and you're greedy. Because if you weren't selfish and greedy, of course, you would come to the table with us and, and you would work on the best way for the government to solve this problem. Sure. And, and what we're trying to say half the time is like, look, it's not that we don't want to address this problem. We don't think your mechanism is correct. The way that I explained it to one person is I said, if you went to your dentist... And you said, you know what? Um, my car's not running properly. I'm going to need you to fix that. And, and the, the dentist said, well, gosh, I really care about you. So let me go try to fix your car. And then they, they screwed up and they didn't do it well. Hopefully you would not come to the conclusion that, you know what I need? A better dentist. One that cares. No, what you need is a mechanic. Mm -hmm. You need a car mechanic. And you're going to the wrong institution in order to achieve the result. And then you're coming to the conclusion that because you didn't get the result you want, it's because your dentist sucks. That doesn't make any sense. And so part of what I, I think the right is trying to do and what we've got to do a better job of is saying like, no, 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 we address the problem. We think the homeless camp is, is an issue as well. And we care about the people within that homeless camp, but we don't think what the, the approach that you're using is going to be the most effective. So, I, Nick, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on why private solutions, non-government solutions, are more likely uh, to be more efficient uh, and lead to a better outcome over a government solution. I, I think there's, I think there's a couple reasons for that. 
Now, again, I, I, I want to emphasize something. I do believe there's legitimate functions of government. Absolutely. Right? National defense, I think, is a legitimate function of government. I think there's other things that the government can do to varying levels of, of effectiveness. But typically speaking, when you have a problem um, that you're trying to address within your life or within your family, Usually you're the one closest to the problem. You kind of understand the nature of it. Sometimes you might need an outside voice to provide some sort of objectivity to addressing the issue or whatnot. Uh, but you're also the most invested in fixing it. Now, if you delegate the responsibility for fixing it um, over to some sort of government or bureaucratic entity, what you need to understand is that that government entity isn't coming in necessarily with the best understanding or sure. the best or, or the or the um, the most subject matter expertise to address the problem. The thing that is unique about the government approaching it is the government gets to use force. It gets to mm. use power. It gets to use coercion. And it gets to use it aggressively. And how does that play out in practice? Explain that for us real quick. So, for instance, you want to, you want to save the planet. Let's use something big, right? You yeah. want to save the planet. Yeah. Okay, here's a couple different ways you can save the planet. You can go out there and you can pick up trash. You can work really hard on an engineering degree in order to develop like a better solar panel. You can come up with new mechanisms for efficiently using, um, you know, land or property in order to, you know, uh, preserve it while at the same time getting better crop yields, right? But, but using less fertilizer. That, that's a number of different ways. And you can encourage other people to invest with you right? You can encourage other people to volunteer with you. You can do all those different things. And each one of them, to some degree, has either an immediate midterm or long-term effect in achieving what you want. And what you did, and, and, and any one of those things that I described, was you relied on voluntary cooperation. Because voluntary cooperation, whether it be in the marketplace, right, the exchanging of goods and services, or whether it be in like a, a charitable aspect, Typically, when people are engaging, they want to be engaging in something that is effective, that is actually sure. producing positive results. The other mechanism you can say is, I want a law. Okay, well, now there's a whole bunch of other incentives that are coming into that law. There's ways to make money off that law. There's ways to- Keep you know, funding rolling in. Keep funding rolling in. There's uh, incentive structures within bureaucratic organizations to increase their size, budget, and scope of authority. Right, that one of the Thomas Sowell, we mentioned Thomas Sowell so much. Thomas Sowell used to be a socialist, used to be a Marxist, yeah. and said that, you know, and, and he studied under Milton Friedman, who was one of the biggest free market economists in, in the world um, at that time. And Sowell said, studying under Friedman is not what turned me into a, a believer in free markets and, and made me skeptical of government power. It was one summer working for the government where he realized he had kind of cracked the code on some of the problems that they were having with the way the government was implementing certain programs. And when he came up with a mechanism for testing whether or not the program was achieving the desired end results, the program fought him tooth and nail every step of the way because it represented such a large part of the budget that if he proved it wasn't actually achieving positive ends, it would mean less people, less money, and less power for that government institution. And so it's important to understand that simply because you hand something off to a government institution with good intentions does not mean that everybody within that institution shares your objectives. It doesn't mean that they possess the necessary yeah. skill sets to bring it about. And ultimately, all they have that is unique from everywhere else, they get to use force. That's it. There is an, another aspect, I, I believe, that causes the free market the private sector to be more unique. And that's the ability to adapt and the flexibility to mm -hmm. be able to change course. Once you're invested in a government program and they have hired the experts, those experts are the people who are going to be deciding 
whatever best practices are. And so the unique thing about having experts within the government is that they really pay no price for being wrong. They pay Dr. no Fauci. They pay no <laughs> price for failure. They can just continue to uh, sort of reshape their argument and mm-hmm. explain why they just really need higher salaries and why they just really need more funding. Yeah. And, oh, well, you know, it's because we're getting resistance from this these people here, so we better bend them to our will. In the private sector... If, if you set out to solve a problem and you do some really big changes and it ends up making things worse, you pay for that. You pay for yeah. that. And people make you pay for that more readily. You, nothing has to go through a big committee process in order to change. It, it's the fact that we see that we aren't meeting the need we intended to meet. Our intentions were good, but it didn't have the correct outcome. Let's correct. And I feel like the private sector has the ability to correct when they're failing and they pay a price for failure. And when you're depending on something to solve a problem, you want people who are going to pay a price for failing because that way it keeps them in tuned with the job at hand. That that was a much better summary than what I gave. I mean, it really comes down to accountability and responsiveness. Well, force is is a big one too. I just wanted to add the other aspect. Yeah, so three aspects, right? Force, accountability, and responsiveness. The government doesn't have to be all that responsive until there's an election cycle. And even then they just got to convince people to vote for them. They don't necessarily have to be correct. Um, the accountability, well, if the accountability only happens every two to four years, that's not a degree of accountability. Imagine going to your grocery store and having a bad thing and being like, well, yeah, I guess you can change grocery stores in two years if you don't like what we're doing. Like, no, you want to immediately go next door. And 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 there's a 90% chance that the yeah. grocery store that you didn't like is uh, still going to be the only one around. Yeah, it's still going to well, get reelected. And they're sending <laughs> lobbyists in there to yeah. um, to lobby for what they want, whatever's going to provide them the most um, financial benefit or or even the the easiest pathway to success. And so, and sometimes that easy pathway is to throw uh, obstacles in the way of other businesses mm-hmm. or other opportunities rising up, and to suppress. Uh, competition. And one of the other ways is to gain funding. So, well, and, and going back to the initial point I made, right? Like there's the moral component and then there's a practical component. Whenever you're talking about efficiencies and effectiveness on the practical side, you have to have accountability and you have to have responsiveness, right? So you, the accountability comes from a competitive environment where people can go to other sources sure. if you're not doing a good job. Right. That's that's the and the responsiveness is because I don't want you to go to other places. I have to be responsive to the whole reason why you came to me in the first place. Government is, is does not score high on accountability or responsiveness. And then on the moral component, it's the use of force. Right. In in the private side and private is just us. Right. That's all private means. It means it's not the government doing it. I don't get to use force to compel you to do what I want. I have to convince you or leave you alone. In the government, they get to use force. That is a huge moral responsibility. Right. And when they do it poorly, they have the capability of hurting people on a level that the private sector cannot legally get away with. The government can legally kill you and get away with it. You can't really do that on the private sector. Yeah. Well, I think a perfect example is we, we were buying some things for the studio uh, yesterday and I ordered it on Lowe's, selected pickup. Tina went pulled into the parking lot, clicked the I'm here button, and somebody in the front of Lowe's brought the brought the product out. Yeah. I go on the DMV website <laughs> and I try and schedule an appointment. 
I can only schedule something for later next week. And then I'm when I get there, I'm still going to have to wait 30 minutes to be seen by somebody. Oh, you're 30 minutes? Around here, if, that, if I make you, an you might actually get 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, around here you might. We've got a decent DMV here where 30 minutes is considered yeah. a stellar performance. But um, <laughs> I, what I find so fascinating, and, and correct me like if, if I'm already kind of jumping the gun and getting us into segment two here, but, but what I find so fascinating about this discussion is Everything that we've been talking about so far is, you know, about how how society is supposed to function and, and make mm-hmm. things better, you know, right. progress itself. And, and But going back to, as I said earlier, that the politics is kind of like emergent from that philosophical or theological grounding and talking about the fundamental difference between, at the end of the day, like, we're talking about, like, oh, the private sector is more efficient than the government or, you know, the... Mm-hmm. Lowe's is more efficient than the DMV. This is how like the average person approaches politics on a day-to-day basis. But asking the bigger question, uh, question of, of why is that the case? And why does a conservative believe that the private sector is usually better off than, than government? I would argue that the fundamental reason that conservatives have placed such faith in non-government actors is because the government does not serve a purpose for providing purpose in their lives. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And when you approach your life from the perspective of, I'm living in this world, but I'm not of it, and the state is not the church, and, you know, liberalism is great, classical liberalism is great, but who cares about progress if there's no purpose or meaning to things? Mm -hmm. And what, I what derive is my, progress yes. if there's no purpose or meaning. And I derive my my purpose and meaning from things that aren't the state or that aren't politics. Right. And there's increasingly it's traditionally I would argue has been the left that has been deriving purpose and meaning through the political process. Um, I mean, Marxism itself is the ultimate manifestation of that. Yeah. It flat out rejects any any sort of of purpose or meaning to to existence. Flat out rejects religion and says that you know. The seizure of the means of production is the ultimate goal for, for you know, the proletariat. And the left is more of a tamed-down version of that in the United States. But ultimately, I think that the left derives its purpose and meaning through the state, through government. And the right doesn't because for the longest time, the right has largely in the United States, but not universally, largely been deriving its purpose and meaning from the church. And by the church, I, I mean the philosophical and theological groundings that are based around Christianity. Yeah. I mean, when, when I, so obviously if you look at the composition of, you know, theological beliefs within the United States from our early history, even today, it is predominantly Judeo-Christian. Now I would say that at different points within American history, that it's been, um, you know, a, a equal parts, emotional, theological, and intellectual conviction. I think more and more it's it's approaching what, you know, the 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 phrase that you I think coined was the whole cultural Christianity, which is it's it's not necessarily a deep intellectual, theological, or relationship in the biblical sense. Somebody believes something without knowing why. And I yeah I was talking to you about this yesterday (laughs) that there is there needs to be a word to describe the act of somebody who holds a belief system without knowing what that belief system is. So uh, the example that I used with Nick, and I'm bringing this up for the audience because I actually think it's important to this discussion and maybe future ones. Imagine somebody held Marxist or socialist views without 
ever having read Marx, never understood what communism was, never read, you know, Das Kapital, anything like that, but, but held views that you could define as being socialist. I don't know any word or phrase to describe that action where you hold a belief system without knowing what that belief system is or that it actually exists out, outside of your own thoughts. Right. If you're listening and, to this and you know a word that fits that, yes, we're looking please for one. comment yeah. right but now. Whatever that eventual word or phrase will be to describe that process. Well, I, I think what's, and I think on the, on the other side of that, it might be the opposite side of the same coin. I think you have a lot of people that identify with something without understanding what it yes. means and they don't actually believe it. That's exactly but, what but I was getting to. Culturally, but culturally it's just become it's a it's a it's a form of their cultural identity which is so important um for social reasons. Not for deep philosophical reasons, not for intellectual reasons, not for emotional just social reasons. And so they identify with it without having any real understanding of what it is, or even if they would really believe it if they knew what it was. Yes. I think one this is actually we're touching a little bit on one of the reasons why I do believe the left does run to government in order to solve problems. And it's because they, a lot of times laws will come into existence after the culture is already shifting that direction. Mm -hmm. And so they will see, Hey, this is working. This is a good thing. Let's get more of it. How do we get more of it? Let's force people. Mm -hmm. And so you, you kind of get this idea of this is a good thing. I can see positive benefit to it. Um, and so instead of just trusting, educating people, trusting people to do whatever that might be, let's go, go to government and have government do it. Well, and, and, I'll, and I, one more thing on this. And again, this is, this is me trying to give the, the best argument I possibly can from the left wing perspective. Their response a lot of times when we come back with this idea that like, why don't you just convince people? Why do you got to force people? And obviously we acknowledge there has to be laws against murder or using, you know, coercion against other people to get what you want. We're like, we're not talking about that. They're like, oh, so you think property rights are so important that I should be able to have a store that says, you know, that discriminates on someone based off of their race or their religion or their sex. And if, and if they're not the ones I want, then they can't come in and shop in my store. And typically what we're saying is, no, we don't think people should do that, right? Especially again, from a Christian worldview, I think that is immoral, racist, sexist, and goes against the, the very fabric of what my faith instructs me. What we're saying is, is that the in a lot of situations where we might agree on what's an appropriate role for government, if you extrapolate that to mean that because this was a moral decision that we think the government might've been correct on, therefore... The government should interject itself in all these other conditions or situations which we think have positive moral outputs. We're trying to remind them that, okay, you're playing a dangerous game here because the government is not the source of overall moral authority. It's not. And what's and interesting this, this is this becomes you a might makes right component. And the moment you say, oh, I like the government coming in and compelling this or restricting this. You gave the authority for the government to do that for a whole host of things that might achieve horribly immoral results. And all we're saying is, please take that into consideration before you start giving a bunch of power to elected officials. Honestly, that is really rich coming from a group of folks who for eons have been telling us, you can't legislate morality. <laughs> and... It's kind of funny because we do it all the time. They do it all the time. Tell that to the woke. It's That's all they want to do is legislating legislate. legislation. It's all got a moral component. All of it. Um, why else would the left be telling us that we're horrible human beings if we don't yeah. X? Why would I and, be a bad person right. if there was no moral component? If to there's what no you moral do? component, and it's like 
what it really is, is don't force your morals on me because I want to force mine on you. That's really what that comes down to. And so I I think that's really interesting uh, talking about morals because I think that's a perfect segue to, you know, our second segment. Uh, and Nick, we've talked about a lot of what the left solutions are to problems within society. And I think going back to the moral component, we believe that it is our job as believers to live out our faith and share those morals and not as much of a role of government. And so, Nick, what I want to ask you is the right typically sees a family and the church playing a much bigger role in society. Yeah. Why isn't it? Oh, I. so that's a really interesting question. Because, yeah, as we look at, like, if you look at, Maybe the top three areas where the left and the right have some fundamental disagreements about the role of government uh, in society. It would probably be taking care of the poor, yeah. um, healthcare, yeah. and probably education. Yeah. On a lot of these other areas, you know, the, the differences are not as stark. And when we when we go to the government and say, oh, the government shouldn't be doing this or that, again, the, the almost automatic response is, well, if the government didn't do it, who would? And our answer typically is, oh, the family would. The church would, civic organizations would, the marketplace would. And to some degree, I, I think that's not sufficient for them because they don't feel like it's a guarantee. Well, there could still be people left behind, which we generally point out like, oh, yeah, because the government hasn't left anyone behind. Oh, yeah. Right? It, it's, it's you know, they're, they're creating a, a kind of a false idol here. But here's what I think is interesting. This is the part where I think the church really done screwed up. If you go back and you look at like the early, late 19th century, early 20th century, Williams Jennings Bryan is probably a- 1890s, early 1900s. The beginning of the progressive era. If you look at some of the biggest leaders within the progressive movement, right? This idea that the government should be playing a a much larger uh, role with respect to the organization of society, the taking care of people, the providing of of services. A lot of those people were in the church. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was this idea that, well, the, the role of the church is going to be, and this is this is weird. It, this almost seems counterintuitive, but it seems to be the way it happened. And, and please leave a comment if you disagree with me on this. It was almost as if the more, the, the church always had a role to provide for widows, for orphans, for the sick. Like that was always there, always there, always acknowledged it was there. But it seems like the more emphasis that got put on, that's the primary role of the church. It's not about pursuing truth or the truth of the gospel. It's about alleviating suffering. The more the the church offloaded its, its responsibility for doing that as a part of the gospel as to more of just like advocating on behalf of government programs. And, and it was this, this weird, I think, perversion of the gospel message and, and, the, and the larger message of Scripture, which is to say that, no, you, 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 know, you are your brother's keeper in the sense that you are responsible for caring about other people. Love your neighbor as thyself. I mean, when Christ was asked, what is the most important command? He said the first is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. That has been a core tenet of Christianity. But it wasn't until, well, I shouldn't say that. Within the United States, it really wasn't until the late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, where that, I think, was perverted into this idea that, oh, what that means is that the church should advocate on behalf of more government power to provide for education and to provide for health care and to provide for you know, the, the poor. And it was like, okay, well then, hey, church, as you're rendering all this stuff to Caesar, what's your job? It doesn't belong to Caesar. What's the quote? Don't send your children to Rome. So there is a, yeah, Vodi Bauckham, who's a a Christian theologian, 
said, uh, you, we, cannot we cannot continue to send our kids to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. So I, first off, I love that quote. Yeah. Um, Me too. Uh, we need to tweet that at some point. But, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, I think you're getting at something interesting, but I approach this from a different perspective. Um, and I think this is where I actually want to read off um, these two paragraphs or three paragraphs from okay. uh, it's it's going to be surprising. So I read this um, this article three years ago, um, although it's definitely still relevant today. In fact, I would argue it's more relevant today than it was three years ago. And surprisingly, it was written by Andrew Sullivan, yeah. who, if you know who he <laughs> Not is. Not exactly a champion of Christianity or conservatism. Well, <laughs> Sullivan, I think, is Catholic. And I don't think he's lapsed. I think he's actually Catholic, but he is not a champion of conservative. He's complicated. I yeah. mean, he, yeah. he used to sport Bush and then he left and then he sported Obama and he's all over the place politically, yeah. but he's a good writer and he can make a good argument every now and then. And I, I will take good arguments from wherever they come from sure. and give credit where credit is. Well, due. that's what happens when you believe that there's such a thing as objective truth. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I think this is objectively true in many respects. Um, it's called, the article is titled, for those of you who are listening and not watching, the article is titled America's New Religions, and it was published in December 2018. Now, there, if you actually go read this, I guarantee you, especially if you're on the right, there are definitely things in here that you are going to get upset about. Um, but it is worth reading. Even if you disagree with probably 25 to 50% of it, I guarantee you, you will probably at least agree with 50% of what is sure. written here. I agree with probably more than that, but yeah. I want to read the very end of this because I think it really goes to the heart of what Nick was talking about just earlier about the way that the church has gone. Sullivan is basically making the argument that Christianity is waning in the United States, but it is still leaving an echo behind what I call cultural Christianity. Mm -hmm. And and his, his overarching thesis is basically that what is going to happen when the United States becomes a post-Christian nation? What is going to happen to our politics? And he concludes with this. We're mistaken if we believe that the collapse of Christianity in America has led to a decline in religion. It has merely led to religious impulses being expressed by political cults. Like almost all new cultish impulses, they see no boundary between politics and their religion. And both cults really do minimize the importance of the individual in favor of either the oppressed group or the leader. And, now, and this is how they threaten liberal democracy. They do not believe in the primacy of the individual. They believe the ends justify the means. They do not allow for doubt or reason, and their religious politics can brook no compromise. They demonstrate, to my mind, how profoundly liberal democracy has actually depended on the complement of a tolerant Christianity to sustain itself. As many earlier liberals, Tocqueville, for example, understood. I find that quite fascinating that yeah. you mentioned Tocqueville there. And then he concludes with, it is Christianity that came to champion the individual conscious against the collective, which paved the way for individual rights. It is in Christianity that the seeds of Western religious toleration were first sown. Christianity is the only monotheism that seeks no sway over Caesar, that is content with the ultimate truth over the immediate satisfaction of power. It was Christianity that gave us successive social movements, which enabled more people to be included in the liberal project, thus renewing it. It was on these foundations that liberalism was built, and it is by these foundations it has endured. The question we face in contemporary times is whether a political system built upon such, such a religion 
can endure when belief in that religion has become a shadow of its future self. Will the house, um, will the house still stand when its ramparts are taken away? I'm beginning to suspect it can't and won't. I, I mean, I, I think that's incredibly. First of all, the writing is very powerful, I and mean, he's mm-hmm. he's a very gifted he's a very gifted writer. Um, and and what's what's interesting is because you'll have some people watching this because obviously not everyone that watches our channel is is a Christian that might take some insult or, or offense to this. And again, I'm look, I'm never going to apologize for being a Christian because I believe it's true. Um, but I, I think on a, on a larger level, what he's putting out here is, again, it goes back to that whole concept that we talked about before. And this is also, I think, what John Adams, who, by the way, was not a Christian in the sense that, I, I mean, he was more of a, a Unitarian. A, okay, I thought he was just a deist. He was a Unitarian, um, which, which, you know, kind of dabbled with with more aspects of deism. But he said that our Constitution is made for a moral and religious people and yeah. is totally unsuited to any other. And And again, he wasn't he wasn't suggesting that you had to believe in a particular denomination, but one of the, the core components of Christianity is this idea that there is an objective truth for which everything else is subordinate. And you have an obligation to relegate your own passions and desires based off of the idea of this truth, not simply because someone is threatening you if you break a law or you cross a particular boundary. Right? There's a moral code that you are expected to follow. And when it talks about the, the liberalism sense, and we're talking more about the classic, about classical, classical liberalism, yeah. which is the idea that you have individual rights, you have individual worth, you know, et cetera. It's the idea that that, that is enshrined, and again, a moral code, which is, is not you know, subject to a majority opinion. So the majority can't come in and say, you're less of a person, because of we your skin color, <laughs> yeah. because we voted on it, and therefore that is the moral precept. It's like, no, 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 that law is a violation of the moral precept. And, and the whole purpose of, uh, again, people engaging or creating governments, and you, you see this written all over the Declaration of Independence, all over the preamble of the Constitution, it's the idea that, no, there, there is certain truths about society. There are certain unalienable rights that have been granted to you by God and government's job is to protect those things, right? That is, that's revolutionary in, in the course of human history. And, and I think he's absolutely right. The idea that you can get the benefits of that without, you can get the benefits of the moral law without the moral law giver. Yes. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. And, I don't buy it. The, the brilliance of I mean, of this- ultimately, you can still get the benefit. Let me, let me rephrase that. You can get the benefits. They're not going to long endure. They will not if long you're gonna, endure. If you're going to try to organize society by pretending like they didn't come from somewhere. What Sullivan is getting at here, and, and he is not kind to the radical social justice left in this essay. No. He's also not kind to the right, though. Either. No, no. And what he is getting at is that the United States has been this amazing experiment in liberal democracy. And when I say liberal democracy, I mean classical liberalism yeah. and and. We need to get that across. I, we're not talking about leftism here. Yeah, yeah. The United States has been an amazing experiment in capitalism and free markets and individual rights and liberalism because you have these two pillars that are, are self-complementing each other. You have Christianity on one side, which is not a religion that is by the sword. It is not a religion that seeks to impose its will through the force of arms or through the use of government. That is literally the entire purpose of Jesus's ministry. When he comes... 
when, when he comes into earth and, and everybody around him thinks that he's going to be the, the Messiah that's going to yeah. drive the Romans out and restore the kingdom of Israel. And he's like, you guys are a bunch of fools. That's mm-hmm. not, that's not the purpose at all. And, and the, the brilliance of Christianity is that it does not seek to impose its will through the state. Yeah. Instead, it provides a moral framework through which you can solve problems, not exclusively through government. Some problems you can solve for the go- mm-hmm. through, through government, but not all problems. And Christianity provides a sense of moral worth and value and truth and justice and knowledge to people that allows them to construct a society that respects property rights, that respects individual rights, that respects the free exchange of goods and services and ideas. And when you take away that moral framework, when you take away that moral foundation, the benefits of liberalism that the United States has enjoyed will wobble and shake and eventually will fall. Well, and, and it's the whole idea of, and, and I, I thought the terminology he used was was really effective when he was talking about this idea that it's it's not that, it's not like religion is collapsing and therefore it's just going away and we're just going to come up with some pure. No, no, the same religious zeal will find expression. Yes. In, in other things, and, and what it will find expression through is through politics. And so it's the whole idea of you can talk a good game about, oh, I don't want you know religion and politics merged together. Like, well, you're no, getting it. Your religion is politics. You're, 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 yeah, when your religion is politics, it's impossible to separate the two. And now you think that because you have a political solution or because you have political power to implement your solution, it comes with the same moral authority. Yes. And, and that's terrible. You want to know how people justify some of the worst atrocities in human history. That's how it, it, it is either. And, and look, there have been people that have claimed to do that in the name of Christianity. Now, it's been a complete perversion of Christian doctrine. But that's that's the terrifying component is when people all of a sudden feel like, no, no, my political solution, which I'm going to use force to impose, comes with the moral authority of God. Hmm. Okay, get ready, oh, man. You can that's justify anything at that this point. This is the heart of what Sullivan is getting at and what uh, what we're trying to argue here because the the thing is is that it is not – like the new atheists like to claim that eventually, or, or that Nietzsche or somebody mm-hmm. would like to claim that eventually people will just discard their childish beliefs in yeah. fairy tales. And now it, people have within themselves a yearning, a desire to search for meaning and purpose and truth in life, which tells me that there is some meaning and purpose <laughs> and truth to find. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're not finding that meaning and purpose and truth in something that is grounded in thousands of years of not just tradition and, and, and thought, but, but in actual truth in, in, in Christianity, because I, I actually do think that that is the ultimate truth. And I understand that people might disagree, but, mm-hmm. but if you're not finding that meaning and purpose in something that is beyond just the collective, beyond the state, beyond politics it, it is, you know, in this world, not in another one, then you're going to find that meaning and purpose and truth somewhere else. You're not like Sam Harris or Dawkins or Hitchens would like to argue. You're not going to find it in in just, you know, the universe or in yeah. progress or in science. You're, you're going to find it in politics. And that is what you're seeing now. You are seeing the emergence of political cults, and it has manifested itself on both sides of the aisle. Oh, but it is especially so it has especially manifested itself in the, the, so to speak, church of the social justice the great awakening. Interesting. I do love you, the line, the great awakening. Yeah. That's do we think geez. that many in the church have started to find their purpose in politics yes. rather in the church? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Next. We so get th- called this, out on that all the time. 
Especially at our church. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it, so it's interesting. Um, the, the left's response largely to the church has been in, in opposition. Or it's been in some sort of, um, like if you look at what you call like left-leaning churches, right? It, you, it really is this social gospel theory or it's this liberation theory. It's, it's the idea that, um, you know, you as a Christian or a religious person um, have an obligation to work with government forces in order to achieve greater equity and equality and, and all these other things, right? So they, they want the, the moral religious, they want the moral and religious authority, but they don't really want the moral and religious like lawgiver. The, the, they don't want that. Um, and, and that's where you see some of these denominations, which I would say claim to be Christian, but, but essentially reject essential Christian doctrine. And, and it's funny cause they'll come back and be like, well, that's your interpretation. It's like, no, this is, this is a clear reading and understanding of the text and thousands of years of understanding and reading of the text. You just find it culturally inconvenient in the moment. So what you see is that there's, there's two. And, and I honestly think the the secular atheist left is a lot more intellectually honest because the secular atheist left is essentially saying, we don't believe in any of this stuff. And that's why we think, you know, government or whatnot is, is the primary mechanism for achieving positive outcomes. Then you have other people on the left that say, well, I want the moral and religious authority or I like the spiritualism of religion. Um, but I, I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, the Bible or, you know, the Torah or it's whatnot. It's true. I mean, how many it, reverends are on the left in the House of Delegates? Uh, I mean, a it, lot. Just in the town of Culpeper, there are a couple of churches that lean left very hard. Well, can and, can and I tell it, you one of the reasons why I think that is? Um, one of the reasons I think that, um, so as a Christian, and, and I am a crazy right winger, guys, okay? <laughs> um, oftentimes we will look at people and be shocked that, oh my gosh, you're a Christian and you're a Democrat. And um, and we kind of catch flack for sort of assuming that a lot of times you yeah. assume, oh, this person is on the right, so they must be a Christian or at least believe in God. And you're on the left, so you must hate God. And um, and so we do kind of have these uh, stereotypes. E extreme stereotypes that aren't always fair. And I'll say that. But I do know people who are Christians, who are actual Bible-believing Christians. Yeah who are on the left they vote absolutely left oftentimes sometimes they vote right for various reasons but one of the reasons i think uh that this ends up being sort of a a, a thing is because i mean so i will look at it and i will go all right but i'm pro-life because we shouldn't be destroying babies and that is very connected to my christianity yeah. believing that everybody has value how can this person who also claims to be a christian be okay with that and still vote on the left yeah. well what i'm not oftentimes taking into consideration or what we don't consider is that there are a lot of other aspects to christianity and charity is a huge yeah. aspect of christianity and so when when somebody identifies more strongly with the charitable aspect mm -hmm. of Christianity, they will see a compassion in the left that they don't see on the right. right. Um, and instead of um, recognizing, so here's where I think they go wrong. Well, first I'll just say what I think they're thinking. They will go, oh, I need to vote for more charity for these yes. people. And they will use their vote as their charitable offering. Yeah. And or as a portion of it. As a portion of the charitable offering. However, 
the reason I believe those things, I, I am also believe, I believe very strongly in charity and, and those aspects of Christianity as well. The reason why it doesn't manifest itself the same way is because the ultimate goal as a Christian is to bring people to him and to bring Mm -hmm. glory to God. And so if I do something for somebody and I am the hands of hands and feet of Christ, you hear that often in Christian circles. It's that I am going to provide physically the help that God wants to give you. And I'm doing it because I believe the Holy Spirit is moving me to help you. And so I'll go and I'll help you. And when you feel gratitude, which you usually will, um, and you want to say thank you, I'm then given the opportunity to say, it's not me. It was, it was Christ in me who did this. And so I want to point you back to him and give him the glory for what has been done. The problem with the other way of looking at charity is if you're doing your charity through government, who are they grateful to? They're grateful to government. Right. And who gets the glory? Politicians. Government. Government yeah. and politicians. And so it really, to me, shifts the focus away from God and away from Christ. And ultimately, that is the goal as Christians. Because um, there was even, we talked about this yesterday, there was even a story where, um, was it Mary Magdalene? She broke the the jar of this very expensive perfume on Christ's feet, and she was crying. She was washing his feet with her tears and her mm-hmm. hair um, because she had experienced profound forgiveness and love from him. Yeah. And Judas Iscariot was really mad about that. That that jar of perfume was worth so much money. Do you know how many poor people we could have helped with that money? And he said that to Jesus. And Jesus said back to him that basically she's got her priorities in order. We will always have the poor with us. This will always be a condition of of humankind. But you only have the Son of God with you for a short amount of time. And so it's this idea of it's about him. It's not about the money and and just easing suffering. It's about pointing people ultimately to him because this isn't it for well, us. And I, I think, you know, the other big problem with that is when we talk about charity, charity by definition requires voluntary yeah. action. Me, me taking from somebody else and giving it to somebody else does not make me a charitable person. It doesn't make the person I stole from a charitable person. And, and the other component here is that some people will look at that and be like, oh, well, that's that's the wrong emphasis. Why didn't you help the poor? And it's like, well, because again, and, and this is a part where I think the 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 church in the West. Well, let and, me jump in here and ask my final question. Well, no, wait, let me okay. let me finish it. The Christian church in the West, one of the things that I think they failed on is that they they stopped they stopped focusing on advocating for the truth. Mm-hmm. And they started looking at all the other ancillary things and making that the predominant thing. Right. We, we do a lot of these other things, whether it be education, whether it be providing for the sick, or be providing for the poor, because this is all in service to what we believe is the truth. And it goes back to that whole idea of, of the purpose and the meaning that is found in knowing the truth, understanding the truth, and living by those things. If you're just trying to say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, you're hungry right now, and now you're less hungry. You haven't dealt with the larger yeah. problems mm-hmm. associated with everything else. And one of the things that is so concerning to me right now about, again, the church in the West is not what the left is saying about it or, or doing to it. or what, like, Yeah, I have concerns with respect to that. 
I have concerns with how many on the right view the church yeah. mm-hmm. or how many yeah. on the right view their responsibility with respect to what they say is their Christian faith. This gets back to the whole cultural Christianity. It do, if you say, if, if you honestly believe that you have effectively lived out your Christian faith because you voted for somebody that you think is a slightly better reflection of, of your cultural values, dude, you have failed. Mm-hmm. Not only have you failed, but you have actually engaged in what I think is actually a form of heresy. And that is this idea that, that you're like the extent of your, your responsibilities is to simply vote the right way. Dude, you have already lost the intellectual argument because what you've essentially said is that the outworking of your faith is through politics. It's through politics. Yeah. It's like, gosh, did, did you miss all of it? Like when, when, when Christ was standing on the sermon on the Mount and he was talking about, you know, caring for others Right? Nobody raised their hand and said, well, can't we just give all our money to the Romans and let them do it for us? Like, No, you have an individual responsibility. And, and to Tina's point, the reason why that individual responsibility exists within that, that faith structure is because it is ultimately in pursuit of the truth. I mean, one of the most profound things that Jesus ever said to Pontius Pilate, and he gets totally overlooked all the time, is when Christ says, I came here for, for this purpose I was born and for this person I came to testify to the truth. All those in favor of the truth listened to me. And Pilate said, what is truth? And then walked away. It was like, oh my gosh, you asked the, you asked the most important question of all humanity to the one person that can answer it with authority. <laughs> because he is the truth. But, but what, what's so incredible about that and what is so concerning to me is that we get all, like within the church, I see these conversations all the time about the government threat to the church or about secular progressives threat to the church. And I'm looking at it going, guys, we're killing ourselves. We're killing ourselves because ultimately we forgot what that first love and that first passion was supposed to be because you can't effectively love your neighbor if you don't actually understand what the meaning and source of mm-hmm. love is in the first place. And, and that's not just an emotional appeal. That provides the groundwork for rationality and logic and science and genuine compassion and genuine love and pursuing those things, actively pursuing those things creates all of the other things that you're trying to achieve through that government approach to, you know, taking care of the poor, that government approach to healthcare, that government approach to education, actually pursuing truth and doing it in such a way that that truly brings, you know, glory to the God that created you doing that effectively will, will manifest itself, right? As a necessary byproduct, it will manifest itself in taking care of people that genuinely need it. And if you really want to see community, that's where it's got to come from. Because if you think, if you think for one minute you can outsource that to a government program, bureaucracy, or politician, I guarantee you what you're going to get is a perversion of it. Yeah. I want to provide one example before we wrap up here as to how the church could actually go about being the hands and feet of Christ in a situation where we place the responsibility on the government. A couple months ago, I was back in North Carolina at my home church, and they were having the missions banquet where all the you know different um, groups would get together that invo- involved with missions. Maybe that was foreign uh, missions, or maybe it was local. Uh, but there was a, a pregnancy resource center that was attending the missions banquet that our church had assisted. We had donated to the pregnancy resource center. And they were presenting what all they do at this center and helping uh, young women who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies. And she kept going back to that they would help connect this young soon-to-be mother 
with government programs, <laughs> with WIC systems if they needed food or housing if they needed housing. And I kept sitting there thinking after she set, gave every single example of how they were pointing this girl to the government, why does our church not have the infrastructure in place to point that woman to us? And I, I think that's a perfect example. And and sure, anyone sitting in that crowd is thankful that that young mother was getting those resources. But she, we needed to be providing that solution. Yeah. But we were looking to our government, which is amoral, has no faith, and will simply be transactional. She'll get that with card or whatever she needs, but she's not responsible to that you know, individual who gave her that, or she doesn't have a relationship with that person. I think one of the, I think one of the reasons why, again, within scripture, Christ says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and render to God that which is God's. It, it's, it, it wasn't just a question about taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rendering things to Caesar becomes incredibly, an incredibly easy way to abdicate yourself of your own responsibility. Yeah. Especially if you make Caesar God. Yeah. Well, how often, how often do we see in the church, um, uh, gosh, the next building project and the next building yeah. project and the next building project, and you kind of look at what are we doing in this building besides Sunday? Yeah. And this big old building sitting there. Well, you know what we could be doing with that building? Yeah. We could be educating kids in there. We, we could be providing these daycare services. We could that be we providing. Could yes. Could, there, there was. I, I was talking to a pastor um, in, in Orange County. Um, over uh, by Locust Grove area in, in Orange County. And um, they really took it upon themselves. They said, well, we believe that the church is supposed, th- these are functions the church is supposed to provide as a ministry within our community. And so they started opening up a free clinic and they started providing you know, assistance with free dental care based off of the resources that they had within their church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that's what they started putting some of the use to. Now they didn't, they, they didn't um, forget you know their their core mission. They just realize that this is a this is a part of the services that we as the church are supposed to provide, and 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 it's a part of that social and community fabric that the that the church is always supposed to provide. And it is so easy to just say, oh no no, we're gonna we're gonna delegate that responsibility to the government. Okay, well there's consequences that come with that, but one of the things that one of the things that I've I've become convinced of is that a lot of the things that people appear the most angry about on social media with respect to what they believe are injustices and their response to those injustices has more to do with relieving their own angst about it than it has to do with fundamentally addressing the issue because fundamentally addressing the issue in a lot of these cases is not just difficult. It is horribly uncomfortable. It is horribly uncomfortable to sometimes have to tell somebody, yeah, the reason why you're in this situation is in part because you've made a lot of bad choices. I was going to say, I and think And we need to help with that. It is so much easier to just say, here's some stuff, especially when you're not the one providing the stuff. It's somebody else stealing the stuff from one person and giving it to another person. And then you get to come in on some sort of moral high horse and think like, oh, well, because I voted for that or because I supported that policy, therefore I get some sort of moral credit yeah. for it. I think that's one of the reasons why the church has abdicated so much and given so much uh, over to Caesar is because when the church helps somebody, um, there is an element of accountability that comes with it. There is an element of let's help you straighten things out so that this doesn't happen Mm -hmm. again. Um, And 
I think, um, I mean, a lot of times people don't want that accountability, but that's not the point I'm going to make. The point I'm making is it's really uncomfortable to provide accountability to somebody. And it's so much easier to help the person get the help and not have to be a part of the dirty, like uncomfortable process of helping them straighten it out. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, it's an, it's extremely taxing. And within the church, everybody knows this. If you go to a church, you've got the same 20 people doing everything Mm -hmm. because we are a church of consumers and there are a lot Mm -hmm. of folks that show up to church that that's what they do on Sunday. They consume and then they leave. And uh, they're not there to give. They, well, they might give like a tithe or an sure. offering. Um, so, but that's the extent it goes. There's not like this urgency to serve. And well, so I think that um, the idea of shielding, taking away some of the excess work and shielding from the uncomfortable process of having to provide accountability is another culprit of um, shifting things over to the government. You you make a really good point that I think we need to dive into just real quick. When the government comes in and provides resources or stuff, they address the immediate material problem, but they do not ever help solve the spiritual problem or the mental problem or the issue that got them into that situation to start with. And so it's a, you, you just keep going around. We'll, we'll give you the stuff, but the problem is never solved. Oh, it's worse than that. They actually, and a lot of times they actually end up creating a perverse incentive. They, they create an incentive to not solve the problem because the moment the problem is solved, you lose something. Yeah. You're no longer getting something if you solve the problem. Not to mention the fact that from an electoral perspective, the more people that are absolutely dependent on you casting the vote to give them the stuff the more loyal your voting demographic is. And so there's all of these perverse incentives with respect to that that are not acknowledged or or that are treated as if, oh, well, that's extreme or that's ridiculous. No, it isn't. Go look at human history. Politicians have oftentimes kept, whether it was bread and circuses in Rome, right, or or, or common things today where they produce, produce perverse incentives. But if you can convince somebody that without them, you're doomed, well, you're not helping them ultimately. You're just helping yourself. All right, well, let's, um, let me go ahead and give a quick summary of this argument. Oh, yeah. Make the argument for us, Mike. <laughs> I almost forgot. <laughs> um, here's what this comes down to. For everybody in the church that's, that's listening to this, and people outside of the church that are just interested in this topic. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we might be concerned about with respect to what the government is doing or what we think um, you know, secular progressivism is doing. It is my wholehearted belief that the biggest problems that we're facing within the church right now are internal to the church. And the reason why I say that is because at a time when the Roman government was collecting up Christians and feeding them to lions, the church was thriving because the church was actually living out its mission and its purpose within society. So this idea that because things have gotten difficult, that's why the church is suffering. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I think what has happened is the church has become incredibly comfortable they become uncomfortable with respect to handing off responsibilities that belong to the church over to the government. They become comfortable for far too long in not creating an intellectual argument and defense for why they believe that what they believe is the truth. And too many churches have treated Christianity as if it's nothing more than a coping mechanism, a faddish diet to where when it doesn't achieve the results that are promised, you simply move on to a different faddish diet instead of actually making the hard, emotional, 
intellectual, spiritual argument for why we believe this is true. And then ultimately living it out in such a way to where the results speak for themselves. So one of the biggest things that we need to once again understand within the church, and I'm speaking specifically to the Christian church right now, is we need to go back to that first love and why we exist in the first place. The church is not a building. It is us. It's the body of the people that claim to believe this. And if we claim to believe it, we better know what we believe, why we believe it. We better be able to defend it. And I don't just mean defending it in a way to where we can sound really smart as we're destroying the arguments of people with counter perspectives. I mean living it out in such a way to where people look to it and wonder what it is that is different. Because the families that we have, the communities that we have, all of those things are producing something that they have a hunger and a desire for. And when they come in a little bit closer in order to find out what is different, that's the point where not only the way that we've lived our lives, not only the arguments that we've made, but what we can point to is what convinces them that there is something true and noble and good and loving about it. And if you think you're going to be able to delegate the responsibilities of the hard work that come along with doing that, making that argument to a government institution, bureaucracy, or politician, then you've already violated one of the core tenets of what we're supposed to believe. It's a good argument. I had my mic muted. <laughs> <laughs> I was not. I was not suppressing Hamilton's speech. I want everyone to understand that. No, listen. Look, I, I know this is a. I know this is a heavy issue. I know that for some of our listeners, especially those that don't necessarily that might agree with some of what we say politically, but don't necessarily think it's it, it should be tied to Christianity or whatnot. Uh, I, I want you to know we're 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 trying to be respectful of our audience, but at the same time, the only way that I can be truly respectful of this audience, the only way any of us can be, is that if we believe something's true, then we need to we need to come out and say that we think it's yeah. true. And we invite we invite the argument back. We invite your perspective. We invite you know the, the different ideas or concepts that you might want to bring to this overall debate. But one thing I can always tell you is that we're going to tell you what we think is the truth. And we're going to argue for it in a way that we think is effective. We're going to argue for it in a way that we think better equips you to be able to know what you believe, why you believe it, and effectively de- and effectively defend it within society. And there's one point I want to make real quick, because I know there's going to be some people in the audience who are going to say, leave the church out of politics. And I like the point that you made, Nick, about the only way that we can truly be truthful with you is to absolutely be um, open about where it is our foundation, com- the foundation of our politics comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would challenge anyone in the comment section who thinks that this episode should not have been made, that we should not have talked about faith whatsoever, to make an argument in the comments for how society would be better off without the Christian church fulfilling what we believe to be our mission in society and make an argument for why we would be better off not fulfilling what it is we believe to be true. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank you all once again for joining us. Please like, subscribe, leave us all those comments. I I, I mean, Hamilton's setting us for a, a long thread and yeah. potentially future episodes. Yeah. Well, that's assuming they waited until this. Very <laughs> they, yeah, they, they may not have even <laughs> they made They might have checked out already. Mad respect if you did. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next episode. 
once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.